fantastic last session. Um, we're going to roll straight into the next one. Uh, just to remind you that there's a break from 11 to 11.30, and then we've got this announcement from Al Jazeera <laughs> on 11.30, so please come back um, from, the, from the break on time for 11.30 if you're coming back here. Don't forget there'll be another session in the Wolfson at the same time as the next session as well. Um, I'm going to hand over to a wonderful panel and a very wonderful chair. I'm very pleased to introduce Anne McElvoy, who wrote a, <laughs> who wrote a wonderful piece yesterday, actually, of, about the, the BBC. So, uh, a media critic. Uh, but over to you, Anne. Mainly media critic of things she works for. Um, I've just learned one thing from Charlie, which I'm going to immediately deploy when I go back to a BBC studio, is instead of being sort of polite and asking people how they got here, I'm going to say, settle down. So, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for settling down. Um, Clearly, a, a, a nice full crowd this morning for a fascinating subject. Few names, or perhaps no name in the world, more contentious at the moment than Edward Snowden. So he's going to be our jumping off point as we look at the role of the media, watchdog or thug in the wake of that story, but also factoring in the Leveson inquiry into the ethics and behaviour of the press. The underlying... Uh, reason for the Leveson inquiry was, of, of course, the hacking story. But also behind that, I think, a more cultural question. Is the press too aggressive? Is it unfair? Does it choose the wrong, uh, the wrong subjects? And yet, there is another view, is there not, that the press is too supine and that lets the powerful get away with too much. Can these things both be true together, or do we need to sort them out a bit? What we thought we'd do with our illustrious panel, I'm just going to introduce properly in a moment, is talk about Snowden, um, where I think there are strong and diverse views on the panel, and then perhaps open up into those broader questions and, of course, leave uh, time for your questions as well. We will just speak, I think, uh, left to right as you're looking at it. To my right, your left, is Edward Lucas, who is, as you will probably have gathered, something of a critic um, of Snowden, and whose latest book, whose title, Edward will now remind me, is... The Snowden Operation. The Snowden Operation uh, gives a very interesting account from his perspective of why he thinks that Snowden is a to humanity as we know it. Uh, Michael Crick, you will know from Channel 4 News, but also an investigative journalist of note who has never held back in taking on the mighty. Annette Dittert from ARD, main German television station here in London, illustrious correspondent who I think knows Britain better than any other German correspondent and is also rather unafraid to speak her mind about us. Let's have five minutes, perhaps, panel, if we could, on what Snowden tells us about the media. And if you could keep that link in mind, I would be grateful because it would be useful to us later. Edward Lucas. Right. Well, thanks very much. And as an LSE alumnus, it's nice to be in a, um, such a nice modern lecture theatre, so very unlike LSE of um, the early 1980s. Um, I'm not against um, at all breaking official secrets, and I've broken stories in my time on that. I've been subject to a NATO leak inquiry and various other things. Um, but I think you've got to look at the context. 
And the fundamental point for me is the naivety and hypocrisy surrounding the Snowden revelations. Every country that can keeps its secrets, and every country that can tries to get secrets from other countries. And if you don't believe that, you just haven't been paying attention. I draw your attention uh, to the uh, very um, little-known German organization called the Commando Strategische Aufklärung, which is the German NSA. And even in Der Spiegel, which has been in the forefront of publishing these shocking revelations that America has an intelligence service which actually goes out and conducts espionage. Um, just a few years ago, there was a, a lavish um, article, I think the technical journalistic term would be blowjob, um, about, the, ab about this um, KSR, saying, isn't this fantastic? We have eyes and ears all over the world and we can pick up conversations of um, drug barons in Kosovo and Russian mafiosi and all these other and people in Afghanistan who are trying to blow up German soldiers and ain't this just great? I'd also draw your attention to a very useful article in the Wall Street Journal published about 12 years ago by Jim Woolsey, former head of the CIA, um, which was called Dear European Allies, Yes, We Spy on You and This Is Why. So the idea that America doesn't have an, an espionage capability and doesn't deploy it in defense of its national interests, I think is only sustainable if you are um, either completely mad, very stupid, or working for The Guardian. Um, LAUGHTER this is, this, is inherently not, this is inherently not shocking. Secondly, I believe that democracies are better than dictatorships. I think democracies should spawn dictatorships. I particularly think we should spawn countries like Russia and China. And I find it absolutely astonishing that the Snowdenisters, which is the derogatory term I've coined for the Snowden followers, which they absolutely hate, and I urge you to use every opportunity. Um, it's, this has nothing to do with, with, with Sandinistas. It's to do with fashionistas, as in unthinking, airbrained, follow the herd, and so on. Um, that the, the, the Snowdenisters have never been able to explain why it's in the public interest to give away how democracies spawn dictatorships. China is a really nasty country. It's a disgusting communist dictatorship that persecutes dissidents, locks people up, occupies Tibet, persecutes religious believers, and conducts aggressive cyber warfare against us. I don't if, if China is not an appropriate target for our intelligence agencies, I don't understand what is. Ditto Russia. One of the most astonishing things to me in the Snowden revelations was the um, interview which Glenn Greenwald, the sort of pope of the Snowdenisters, um, gave to um, Swedish television where he declaimed in terms of absolute outrage, how is it possible that Sweden spies, not just on Russia, but spies on Gazprom? He said, and Gazprom isn't even the Russian government, it's just a company, I quote. It's, I didn't mention my book is 99p on, um, on Amazon. Um, <laughs> Not, not because it's been remaindered, not because it's been remaindered, but that's the full price. It's a Kindle single, and it's about 20,000 words. You can read it in an afternoon, and it explains my views um, at, at, at some slightly greater length than I can have here. And of course we should spy on Gazprom. Gazprom is the gas arm of the Russian state, or you could possibly say the Russian state is the political arm of Gazprom. But anyway, they're two sides of the same coin. And clearly particularly given what we're just seeing right now in the way that Russia behaves, we should be spying on Russia and we should be spying on Gazprom and Sweden as a neighbour of Russia, as a rather small country, has every right to be doing this in um, cooperation and collaboration with the United States and with Britain and there's absolutely nothing scandalous about it. 
Very briefly, people have said, oh, it's outrageous um, that the NSA spies on companies. Well, of course we spy on companies. Gazprom's a company. Huawei's a company. Companies are full of intelligence targets. What the, uh, one of the interesting things about the Snowden Easter's revelations is they've been unable to produce any single piece of evidence showing that the espionage conducted by the NSA goes to the benefit of a big American company. Not one document. He had free reign in the NSA. We can get into that later. Um, but he was not able to produce any evidence of that happening. If it had happened, it would indeed be a scandal and illegal. Um, but there's no evidence of that, just as there's actually no evidence of the NSA deliberately um, conducting, uh, um, break, breaking other American laws. We can get, we can get, in, we can get into that um, later. In short, I think the media, this is one of the dark hours of the media, and if Snowden had approached me with these documents, I'd have marched him straight down to Bow Street Police Station and asked them to arrest him. <laughs> I think it's always good to start these sessions with someone who sits on the fence. Uh, so, I'm going to ask Michael Quick, which side of the fence is your bottom one? Well, um, I'm not going to talk about Snowden because... Uh, just being told to. Sorry? Just being told Snowden to. No, I, well, you've been told to talk about uh, things as well that you haven't spoken when, about. When, so, did uh, ever talk about <laughs> when did any of these people ever talk about you, what you, you tell you, them you, to talk about? You've been told to talk about whether British Settle journalism down. is too supine or too aggressive. Settle down, panels. <laughs> right. No, um, in here. I'm sure yeah. Annette is going to talk about Snowden, and I'm sure uh, other people are going to talk about Snowden. I um, will talk about the, the, the wider issue about whether British journalism is too supine or too aggressive. I look back to when I began as a journalist 34 years ago, and certainly I would say we, are, we were then far too supine. British journalism in 1980, frankly, was terrible compared with today. It was a world of uh, uh, long lunches, expense fiddling, most journalism in this country, uh, which simply consisted of newspapers, television and radio, was regurgitation journalism. There was very, good, very little uh, investigative finding out, revealing, holding government to account or holding powerful people to account type of journalism uh, beyond perhaps the Sunday, well not perhaps, beyond the Sunday Times, World in Action, the occasional edition of Panorama. That world has now uh, transformed in the last 34 years uh, and very much to the better we are a lot more aggressive uh, as journalists in this country. We are a lot better at holding people in power to account, our governments to account. If you just take my own area of uh, political journalism, most political journalism in 1980, uh, on television it consisted of men in grey suits addressing the camera about uh, what had um, happened in debates in the House of Commons that day, or occasionally hinting at things that they might have been told uh, at lobby meetings. Now, political journalism on television consists of very little of what goes on in the House of Commons, a lot more aggressive, trying to find out what's going on in government, trying to reveal what's going on in government, asking people uh, who don't want to be asked about what they're up to uh, in politics. And I think the same is true in most of the other areas of British journalism. It varies, but I think that political journalism, which is, I would argue, the most important area of journalism in this country, but then I would, wouldn't I, uh, certainly has transformed very much for the better and occasionally, I would argue, has gone too far, has occasionally been too thuggish. Um, I remember uh, a period probably seven or eight, nine years ago in the mid-noughties where British journalists, political journalists, acted uh, like a pack of dogs sort of 
pulling down one senior politician after another. So we had two successive leaders of the Liberal Democrats, a leader of the Conservative Party, the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, Peter Mandelson twice, David Blunkett twice, uh, several other uh, members of the then uh, Labour cabinet, brought down, partly by their own follies, but partly by uh, revelations and pursuit by uh, journalists. And I think we, at times, did go too far. And indeed, I remember attending one meeting at the BBC uh, where the reaction was, right, so-and-so's gone, who can we bring down next? Now, that, to me, is um, not the duty of journalists to bring uh, senior people, bring politicians down. And I would say that is an illustration of where we did become too thuggish and too aggressive. I think we've... Help, we've, we've rode back a bit from that now. I think we're a bit, bit more sensible about that now. But the whole attitude of British journalism, and not just broadcasting and television, but the newspapers too, the internet, is much more fulfilling our duty and our responsibility of holding people in power to account. And in doing that, we are helped by the development of uh, the internet, of social media, the ability of Twitter, the ability to ask questions, to point things out straight away, the digital age of being able to transfer uh, uh, documents and get documents online in an instant, Um, and of course, uh, developments such as freedom of information, and more widely, just the greater culture we live in and the assumption that governments and people in power have to be a lot more transparent and open. Now, amid there are huge failings. We, go, we generally go for the low-hanging fruit. We do the easy stories. We do the stories that don't require lots of technical explanation. Other areas of journalism I don't think are as good at being bold and holding people to account as political journalism. I mean, sports journalism, I think, is still living in the dark ages. Business journalism still needs to catch up. Other areas of journalism are behind. But overall, I would say we are not too supine anymore. We've just about got the balance right. And I think that journalism in this country is healthier uh, than it's probably uh, ever been. And uh, the biggest development, I think, is plurality. The fact there is so many journalistic outlets, so much competition, uh, it means that uh, people people in power have to think a lot more carefully about doing wrong things than they did uh, in the past. Michael, I'm just going to pick you up on one thing because it's just too tempting to miss. Uh, Journalists occasionally, like politicians, speak in generalities rather than particulars. Did you ever go too far? Yes. (laughs) This is your moment. You you can repent because there's nobody listening. You, oh, sorry, you want to chapter no, of verse know, on that? Yeah, I, want to, <laughs> I do want to chapter a brief chapter of verse, because you did say, you described a certain period, and you said, we went too far. When did you go too far? Um, well, I think, um, uh, in particular, I, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much people here will remember the, uh, the, the, the decline of Ian Duncan Smith. Um, and personally, I, I crossed the line in a way I shouldn't have done. I uh, ended up referring him to the standard. I couldn't get my story on Newsnight, and I ended up referring uh, the story I had, or I thought I had, to the, to the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner. And I think I crossed the line uh, as a journalist there, um, and, I, and I shouldn't have done that. And in the end, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner broadly decided in Ian Duncan Smith's favour and against uh, the story um, 
that I had um, against me, yeah. Um, and um, although the, the report made very uh, interesting reading. Uh, but I suppose that was an illustration of it. Um, but I think, that, I think there was too much of a, of, a, of a pack mentality. We've got to bring this guy down. Uh, and then, you know, you tick another, another you tick up a, it's another trophy on the, on the mantelpiece or, or so on. And, you know, that's not what democracy, what politics sh- should be about. It should be making sure that people behave and not that they resign every time they misbehave. Perfect time then to bring in Annette Dessert on what democracy should be about and how far the, the press is entitled to go, particularly when it comes to dealing with the sensitive territory of the security state. Uh, when Annette came on start the week, which I was presenting, which she came on, she spoke very interestingly about the, the difference in the reactions to the Snowden case in Germany and here. And Annette, I wondered if you would along the way, say a bit about these two different media cultures as they've handled this story and perhaps what it says about their respective priorities. Mm. Yeah, I was indeed very surprised when, uh, after having been here for six years, I saw how the Snowden story was received here in the UK. Um, Basically, very, very different and as different in, in so different ways as never before I had seen it. Um, while Snowden was widely welcomed in Germany as a, yeah, as a hero, as a resistance fighter almost, you would here have rather the way Ed Lucas would depict him, which is always very enjoyable, but uh, certainly did not really um, meet the way it was received in Germany. And that actually was one of the most astounding discoveries for me that the story that being certainly one of the biggest stories of the last years would pop up whenever the Guardian had a new data scandal they broke on all the major front pages of international media and here it was just silence and that was quite a weird experience not only for the Guardian but only for for me being a journalist coming from the continental European German culture and over the time I of course um, came to, to, I mean, several discussions on that, and, and of course there's quite a few historical and cultural reasons for this different uh, perception. Uh, whereas here you have an almost romantic relationship with the security services, um, believing, <laughs> believing that they do. It's almost part of the national identity in some ways sometimes. Um, In Germany, of course, we do have a totally different um, history and certainly no good reasons to believe in our security services, something that is only there to protect us. I mean, we had the Stasi, we didn't have James Bond. (laughs) And um, then I think it also had to do, and, and here it comes to the media landscape here with the paper who broke the story, which was The Guardian, who, as you all know, has not the best relationship with the rest of the mainstream media here, and which led to this story being almost not reported on uh, anywhere else apart from The Guardian, which I found, um, yeah, again, quite astonishing. And last but not least, do I think, coming from where I do come from, from a rather European uh, relationship with our security services or German relationship, do I think Snowden did uh, the public a service? Do I think The Guardian did do the public a service by reporting on it? Yes. I mean, I wouldn't go so far that I'm a Snowdenista, but I think he did the public a service. And also the NSA and, and the GCHQ is a service, at least now those guys know how easy it is to hack their data and that there is something to be done to uh, have them secured a bit better in the future. Another one thing that stands out from that, you say you're not a Snowdenista, but the question of proportionality does loom over Snowden. 
So unless you're a fully-fledged Snowden Easter and have the T-shirt, does the question bother you at all, uh, particularly given the history of the intelligence services in, in Germany, is that what you do has to be proportionate to the situation. Are you satisfied that Snowden meets that criteria? I would first say, is it proportionate what NSA and the GCHQ did here? And it certainly is not. And that is what came clear uh, with the Snowden revelations. Uh, whether the uh, way the story was told was proportionate is a long debate. We certainly will not really be able to have here. But I think the mere fact that, for example, Obama and in Washington now, they have a very close look on the laws, uh, there has something to be changed, is an acknowledgement that that's something that the public had to... Um, had to know about, and I think it is it is good that this came came out. It is good we know about this, and it is good that a few things will be changed. I'm not saying that that the NSA or GCHQ should go in front of TV cameras and and not exist anymore. Of course, they have to keep things hidden, but the extent to which they did it was certainly wrong. And I think it is a good thing that this came out. Edward Lucas, this is the problem for your position that it is actually better that we know quite a lot of these things, which we would not have known before, and it's a slightly odd position for journalists to say, you know what, I wish I hadn't known this. Well, I think there's a, there's a question of what you mean by no, because we've got lots of slides from internal NSA presentations, um, and it's very hard to know, to do proper journalism on them, because if you get some secret you know, internal minutes in the LSE saying they're thinking of turning the LSE into a theme park and chucking out all the students, you, you can very easily do journalism on that. It's a world that we know. You can cross-check things. You can phone people up. And you can quite quickly get an idea whether these leaked documents are just a proposal which was turned down, um, something that was, was tried and then um, not carried through, um, was a thought experiment, something that's actually happened, something that, um, and you can, you can get a kind of perspective on it. And with this secret stuff, it's really difficult to know. And the, I mean, what, what we do know is that neither NSA nor GTHQ is at all good at designing PowerPoint slides. I think that's a, that's a kind of yeah, one, one very clear thing. But it's it, I mean, quite often in these, these this stuff, it's been unclear, and the initial reporting's been wrong. The report, initial reporting of PRISM was just plain wrong, because the journalists trying to analyse this stuff genuinely didn't understand it. Now, you can argue whether they put willful spin on it, and I'd say in some cases um, they definitely did. Um, but you've got this rather random collection of information, which is quite difficult to um, say how you know, to, to do the... You can't phone up and say, is this true or not? And there have been some quite amusing incidents sometimes where they, they've been trying to, um, it, some of the journalists have been trying to remove the most damaging bits from the slides, often incredibly incompetently, because then the, in fact the names of six intelligence officers have actually been disclosed as a result of the journalists' inability to black things out properly using the complicated technical means of Adobe Acrobat. But sometimes when they're on the phone to the NSA saying, so is this bit in the purple box um, is secret, and should we black that out? And the NSA says, well, on our slide it's pink. And you get into this sort of, and it's really, it's really difficult to do, to do this. So I think I, I want um, the security and intelligence services to work within legal constraints. Absolutely. I actually think the, the American system is wrong. I don't like it. I don't like the way politicians get so close to it. But I think you should have legal constraints. But within those, um, I think they should get on with it. And I don't think you can't be half secret. It's like being half pregnant. You're either secret or you're not. And if you apply selective disclosure to the work of the intelligence services, you get into all sorts of problems of politicisation and, 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 and bias and actually real threats to privacy. Michael Annetta said that we had an almost romantic relationship with the security services. 
Uh, does that ring true to you? Well, I suppose there, there is some... Uh, I, I see what she's getting at. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got an interview with um, Chapman Pincher, who I think is a hundred on, on the programme, I think it's tonight or maybe Monday night, who I think uh, is 100 years old uh, tomorrow. And uh, he, of course, made a whole... Well, covers the whole post-war period, making a, a living out of covering the security services. And he, uh, I think he says on the programme tonight that, um, uh, uh, that Snowden should be shot... Um, the um, <laughs> no, no, Edward agrees with uh, with, with that. Order, but, order of Lenin first, <laughs> and then shot. Maybe the other way around. I think I think um, one of the, uh, uh, the important points to make here. I mean, Edward, you, you say you know what, so, surprise, surprise. Uh, the security services spy on dictatorships, but surely what was shown here is that they're also spying on democracies as well, um, and that's uh, you know, a, 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 a crucial uh, revelation uh, of all of this. Um, you, you, sorry? It's not, I just said Jim Woolsey wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal saying, Dear European allies, this is why we spy on you. It's not a revelation. Well, if it's not a revelation, then presumably nobody bothered to read it and nobody, nobody who read it was surprised. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the French consul in Texas was expelled from America for spying in 2006. Germany ran an intelligence operation on its NATO ally Estonia from 2004 to 2009. This is, yeah, it's, it's in the papers. This is not a revelation. Well, it may not be a revelation in your world, but we are not just... Uh, it's, in the Wall Street. it's in the Wall Street Journal. Let, Spiegel, it's not in my world. Let, let Michael finish. Let's bring Annette in, mo- and then you can... Most members, of the public, most members of the public don't read the Wall Street Journal or Spiegel. Um, and it is well worth reminding uh, the people who vote in our dem- democratic societies that these things go on. And that is one of the things that has come out of the Snowden revelations, that a, a, a reminder that these things go on. Of course, most of us who sit back and say, well, is it understandable they go on? We say, yes, it is. Uh, are, are we, are we the, the semi-experts or the expert, in your case, surprised? No, but it is worth reminding uh, members of the public that these things go on. And what has happened as a result of these revelations is, particularly in America, they are now standing back and saying, right, well, let's, re- let's review this. Did we go too far? Yes, we probably did. There is always... A danger, isn't there, with saying, oh, well, you knew that already, as if that, that sort of and, made and, and we the difference. we didn't know it already. I mean, I would really like to contradict you. Of course, you might have known, and a lot of journalists who work in this field do know that, of course, security services spy on companies, etc., PP. But what we didn't know was the extent to which they were able to spy on simply everybody, and that's why it was such a big story, and that's a different thing. And that's why I think, other than you, Ed, that... It is, he has not, Snowden has not been a useful idiot, as you put in your book, but he has been somebody who has made the public aware of what's going on and who has also made uh, the legal framework, hopefully, at least to be changed in America now. But at an enormous cost. I mean, I'm all in favour of public education, and you know, if people had bought um, my previous book on espionage deception, <laughs> um, which had a great deal about this in it, and if they bought that in their millions rather than the tens of thousands, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been against it. But you've got to balance... I mean, This is the greatest intelligence disaster in the history of the West, by far. It's like sinking 
half the Navy. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars in capabilities. Whole careers, efforts have been uh, are completely redundant now. Because he hasn't just given away the fact that we spy, which is kind of, yeah, if you said, do you think GCHQ does spying? Even two years ago, yes, you know, there's a clue in the name. Um, do you think the NSA does spying? Yes, you know, we, we kind of know that. But what, what, what's so shocking about this is he's given away capabilities. I mean, it really detailed capabilities. Well, what is also is, shocking is that these people uh, operate in such a way that this could happen. I agree. Uh, and, that's, and it's an intelligence disaster from that point of view, and they need to tighten up their procedures. But haven't you got them there, Michael, in Argonata? I do want to come back to you on, the, on the, the German situation in a second, but hang on, that's a bit of an unfair pincer movement. I can never remember whether it's a Morton's fork or an Occam's razor, but you know, you're, you're all steeped in this, you can tell me. Is, when you say, oh, you've done a terrible thing, and oh my God, and you were so incompetent at it. <laughs> well, kind of, which, which is it? You know, it is like the well, that, Jewish that, 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 joke. That, 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 that is the luxury that journalists have, that we can actually, uh, and indeed there will be some people who regard one as more important as some who regard the other as more important, but it's important that we as journalists make both points. And a next point about why it got so little coverage beyond The Guardian in this country, I think is fascinating. Um, And in some ways, I think actually it reflects rather well on the media. Um, because one of my great worries about us is that we operate in packs. And quite, quite clearly here, we did not operate in a pack. Or at least if we did operate in a pack, it was an anti-Guardian uh, pack. Uh, I mean, it, you could say it reflects competition. Um, and that um, there was an element that we, we, we ignored, the sto- or a lot of people ignored the story, or gave it very little coverage, because it was somebody else's story. And that does happen a lot of the time, and it's very infuriating when is, it happens is, is, to is you. Is it panel, or is it the rest of panel? Is it to press me about- one for Annette, she brought it up. Is it simpler than that? Basically, the Guardian had a sort of dump of information, and other people certainly didn't. So all you could do was then say, oh, the Guardian says this, the Guardian says that. Well, that is not generally, not even in the enlightened world of German media, the way that journalists... <laughs> I don't, you don't go on air tonight and say, you know what, ZAF, they've got this amazing story. If I were you, I would switch over, because frankly, it's much better than what I'm bringing you. Yeah, but I mean, a comparable... Oh, yeah, no, sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just, that, I, I don't think that that's right. I don't think it comes down to competition that it wasn't reported apart from The Guardian. This story was such a big story that there would have been enough reasons to do it even if I didn't have had the information being The Telegraph or The Times. I think it came down to clearly some kind of revenge the mainstream media could finally take on The Guardian. We will listen to Russ Bridger later on that. Um, I mean, The Guardian does have a very um, does not have the best relationship with the rest of the media in this country, as we all know. But I mean, apart from that, it also of course has to do with different uh, historic experience, and I'm not talking only about the Stasi, but for example, in Germany you wouldn't have, have the experience of terrorist attack on, on German soil. I think MI6 is letting us know. <laughs> Yeah, there we go again. Okay, anyway, I mean, we don't, I mean, in Europe, you don't have this kind of consciousness of terrorist attacks on your, on your own soil, and that's, apart from having a romantic relationship, that's probably also because people feel more close or more confident with the security services but here. But Edward's point was that, you know, this has been quite seriously undermined and endangered. The journalists are not the best judges of when they are doing that, because they can know a lot about how the intelligence services operate, but, but, but they that, do not know everything, and neither can they. That's certainly true, but I think the way The Guardian has redacted that story was rather carefully, and I can't really see this argument 
um, that always comes up at this point of the debate that this has damaged national security. And then when you the ask is why you and where, it, is yeah, that but, but, I mean, but that's patronizing, I find, because that's a way of telling you, okay, yeah, we cannot tell you, but you have damaged national security. You have to believe us, no matter what we say. I mean, I'm not expecting the GCHQ to go public and, and talk in, a, in front of a camera. That's why this, this uh, public affairs committee was a bit ridiculous as well, and explain where and what went wrong. But I mean, at least they could do that within another committee. And I haven't seen that yet. And even when we talked and discussed it on start of the week, we had uh, there Edward Ormond who couldn't also answer that. Well, so I just first of all, the Economist had two cover stories on Snowden, so I don't think that we um, that we we ignored the story. Um, I find it astonishing that you can say this hasn't done. I mean, the very first thing Snowden did was to tell the South China Morning Post the way in which we spy on SMS messages inside China. That was a capability. It doesn't work anymore. Just recently, we've had this thing about using the Huawei, that the um, NSA got into Huawei servers and um, used them to spy on Chinese officials who were using Huawei. That doesn't work anymore. I mean, once, once, I mean, the, the, I mean even on the, the simplest level, the, the capabilities that have been given away, you can take countermeasures. And some of this stuff, the other side genuinely didn't know about it. Now they do. It's interesting, just worth noting, for example, that we were totally unable, both GCHQ and NSA, to spot the invasion of Crimea. The Russians did radio silence in a way they have not done in any previous operation. You know, we, Georgia, we knew exactly what was happening, minute by minute. This time we didn't. Is there a point you'd like to make on any of this before we go to the floor, Michael? No. Good. Then we will. Then we will hear from you. Enough of this lot for a bit. Uh, it would be jolly nice to take a couple of questions at once. I've got a gentleman in the front row and a, a fleet of foot people with microphones, and then perhaps the lady behind in the pink top. So if we could just start down here as quickly as you can. Sorry, I'm ferocious about microphones being fast. Yeah, basically, can you break the land speed record, gentlemen? Here, come on, you have to wake up. <laughs> Now I've got, you know, Charlie ringing my ears. I feel like I'm really tough with you all. Right, sir. Thank you very much for very exciting debate. And so my uh, name is Masato Kimura, Japanese freelance journalist. My question to uh, Edward. And so how do you judge Obama's response to uh, Snowden case? So uh, Obama said uh, he will quit uh, not only uh, world policeman, but also massive surveillance. And the second question is, I read the three books about Snowden file, Snowden operation, and NSA uh, written by uh, Washington Post. And so there is no mention how Snowden pick up uh, such kind of huge files. And so you dismiss the, the importance of Snowden, but uh, the scale is massive. And how uh, can you judge uh, Snowden can pick up uh, such kind of huge how, 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 could he, yeah. how could he actually get the information? Uh, yes, I'd like to take the lady behind now in the pink top as quickly as you can, please. Can you pass the microphone back? Thanks. Uh, Linda Corsha, I want to challenge um, Michael Crick's basic premise that the Westminster soap opera is the core action and draw the connection to the Snowden stuff because that's such a big deception in itself and, and it means that you're actually such a, a, a part of the problem in, in propagating that idea that that is the core action, the, the Bill and Ben Act in Parliament. When the city, uh, that's, I'm, I'm talking transnational financial services, controls all the three major parties, 
So it would be more useful perhaps to focus on, say, the role of the city's remembrancer in both houses, ensuring the city control across our parliament. And this doesn't need Snowden, who is great. This is actually your job, and it would bring a bit of reality to it And instead of uh, propagating the delusion. Right, let's go around the panel first. The, the sort of first question being Obama's response, and I think that was your, the first part, and then the second one was simply, well, how on earth could he get the information in the, the first place? I mean, we may need to sort of have that in haiku form. Uh, um, in, but any thoughts in, on that? In, hai- in haiku form, um, I think there's a genuine debate about metadata and the, um, the way metadata turns into data when you aggregate it. This isn't new. We've had the, the Section 215 of the Patriot Act has been a subject of a big debate in America, we had the whole row about warrantless wiretapping. Um, so I, I don't think you can say that Snowden has um, changed the way we understand this. What he has done is shown that there's a central metadata um, warehouse and there's the particular interaction with, with the Pfizer court. This is pretty technical stuff, and I think that you're, even after Obama's rather limited proposed reform, you're still going to have metadata warehouse, and you're still going to have very speedy access um, from it by the um, by, by, by NSA. But I agree. There's, I think there's a small plus on this because we do need to talk about metadata, and there's a small plus also on the question of cryptography and whether you've got um, cryptographic standards being deliberately subverted, which hasn't been proved, but the evidence looks pretty pretty strong. And if that's true, it's a tactical triumph, but a strategic mistake. So I think there are some pluses in what Snowden done, but they are massively outweighed by this absolutely colossal damage, which I still haven't... I mean, even if the Snowdeneasters think that it's wrong somehow for America to spy on Germany, despite the fact that Germany breaks sanctions on Iran, has deals with Russia, has deals with China, but anyway, leave that aside. What is the justification for the Snowdeneasters for for, for giving away the way we spy on dictatorships? And that has never been answered by any of them. And as if I could flip the Obama question to you, I mean, one of the, the things that you're on my, it's rather unfair to ask you to be standing for Angela Merkel here on the, on the panel, but hell, you're here. There is a sort of sense in which Germany is sort of picking through this in a rather selective way. Edward just mentioned, has quite a substantial uh, foreign intelligence operation of its own, particularly in commercial espionage, also no stranger to the gathering of metadata. And yet, as I feel the German mood, and certainly the way the German uh, press has, has reported it, it's all about the Americans. It's all about suddenly the guy that everybody turned out on the street to hail, Obama, as being the guy who has failed to deal with this. Should you be actually more critical of your own intelligence services as well as Obama? I think if you would ask Merkel in, in private, she would be rather relaxed about all this, knowing that she's a very pragmatic politician. I mean, I think she seriously was upset about her mobile being hacked into, which was a stupid thing anyway. But apart from that, of course she knows, and of course German politicians know that there is a lot of collaboration going on and that they are working together and there's no, uh, yeah, there's no big illusions on that. Merkel basically responded to, to a big public outrage over the Snowden revelations, which I think was justified and she is behind the scenes I think wavering back and forth. Um, I don't think um, the approach was very very harsh in reality she, she made uh, towards Obama. Is it interesting that she asked for, for the gathering of information on yeah, I mean, her to stop? She didn't ask for what had been gathered to be made public. I mean, she was drawing quite careful lines. Yes, because, I mean, Obama, after, after he reacted um, in his speech in Washington to, to those revelations, and especially to Merkel's phone being hacked, uh, made very clear that this would stop, I mean, the hacking of Merkel's phone, which was a rather symbolic kind of peace 
uh, agreement, and that's where she left it. Basically, so she basically she changed provider, didn't she? And then it was all it's, right. Yeah. Uh, now, Michael, you uh, you stand accused of being in the doing the wrong job. Really, you're looking in the wrong place. You're elevating the role of Parliament and self-important politicians. And actually, all decisions are made uh, by financial services in the City of London. So you know, it's all been a bit of a waste. Well. <laughs> I think, I think one of the points I was trying to make earlier is that the politics isn't simply about Parliament. Obviously, Parliament's important because Parliament is where the will of the people uh, is collectively gathered. But I think that modern political journalism is, is now much beyond, gone way beyond Parliament, and we recognise the importance of uh, Whitehall, local government, the Mayor of London, the political parties, the financing of the political parties, the civil service, pressure groups, and so on. Political journalism has widened well beyond uh, the Palace of Westminster in the last uh, 30 years and is much the stronger for it, as indeed is journalism. Now, if you're, if, if you're then saying, well, we don't look at, enough at the City of London, the financial institutions, I would say yes to that, that you're absolutely right. And it is one of the great weaknesses of, of our journalistic community over the last 20 years that we uh, have not held them to account in, in the same way, and you could argue that the financial crisis of uh, five to six years ago uh, partly stems from that. Uh, but I, I, I think we are, we are better at analysing the goings-on of the City of London than we were 20 or 30 years ago, and we're better at analysing uh, the goings-on uh, goings in our political community than we were uh, all those years ago. There's room for improvement, certainly. God, we've got loads of hands and very little time. Panel, everyone's going to have to be brief. Let's take three questions. One over there. No, you're not allowed to just shout, because somehow it never works. <laughs> all right, go on, if you go. Just shout. <laughs> no, there you go. Well, even more spying would be your uh, your remedy. Right. Next next question. Next question. Thank you. Is that microphone working at all? Can I shout? Yeah, you sound like you've got the, the lung capacity. It absolutely uh, puts lives at risk and we shouldn't publish it. If, however, you don't take advice, you run the risk of putting lives at risk. What are, what are journalists supposed to do with such material right. the next time a student comes around? Right, very good question. Has anyone got, there's loads of questions, any questions, one or two short ones that are not really directly about Snowden, Archangel or, or Devil? Yes, and you, I mean, just if you, leave your hand up if your question is a bit broader. There's a gentleman in the second row here. Yes, you with the blue shirt and the funky jacket. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, just going back onto the question of sort of the aggression or supination of British journalists. Are they that aggressive, say, in comparison to those in France, for example, when it comes to the private lives and personal lives of politicians and public figures? And where do you think the differences come in? Why do you think there's a difference, perhaps, right. or is there a difference? Okay, uh, let's go down a different way this time. Michael, why don't you start us off? Um, take any of those. Are, are there differences? Are we more aggressive than our European 
counterparts. Uh, you can either take on the, what are you supposed to do if you get an intelligence dump or not? Um, I, I, I suspect we are more aggressive uh, than our European counterparts, uh, and certainly when it comes to the private lives of, uh, of our politicians. Uh, and, and it's well known the difference between what happened, uh, uh, the, the failure to ask, uh, or the, the, the fact that people didn't ask uh, uh, Hollande about uh, his affair, uh, and it was left to British journalists to do so. And there, there are different cultures there. But I think that that, but, but more important than that, I suspect we are more aggressive as a journalistic community than most other Western, uh, Western uh, countries, uh, with the possible exception of uh, Australia and, and New Zealand. Certainly, I would argue we're, we're more, more aggressive than the United States. Um, Despite the big freedom of speech commitment in the Constitution, this amendment. Uh, there is, and I think that's partly because, uh, to a degree, there is a deference towards uh, the President of the United States um, because he's the head of state. I mean, I think one of the telling things is, you know, when, when he turns into a press conference, everybody stands up in uh, uh, the United States uh, when, uh, when, when Obama or the President turns up. We would never dream of doing that. Uh, Everyone just sort of sits, <laughs> continues cleaning their nails when the Prime Minister walks in until it's their turn. Yeah, no, no. And, and we dive back in and, and ask aggressive follow-ups, and we're doing that more and more and more. I do remember when George Bush came through town, there was a big blip in which he actually came and was reasonably popular, and he gave a little wave to the press, co- the press conference and everyone went, ooh. You know? <laughs> on, on the Snowden thing, what I find fascinating is that we haven't looked at, we haven't, nobody's mentioned some of the, the historic precedents on this. I mean, for instance, the Pentagon Papers from the, the early uh, 1970s and the publication of that, and many of the same arguments about publication uh, and, and, uh, were made at that time. The Pentagon Papers, which had revealed how secretly uh, the Johnson uh, and, and Nixon uh, governments had increasingly got involved uh, in Vietnam and deceived uh, the Democratic and, and the public, the American public at that time. And the publication of the American Pentagon Papers uh, revealed uh, that deception. And there was a huge argument at the time, and, this was, and Nixon regarded this as a, a, a total outrage and, uh, and so on. And again, we had the Peter Wright, uh, remember the Peter Wright memoir, Spycatcher, uh, which was regarded as such an outrageous thing to do that the, uh, the Cabinet Secretary went all the way to Australia to argue against it. I don't think in either of those cases now people would seriously argue that uh, the pub- those two publications were hugely damaging. And I would think that, that, that people would, on the contrary, they would argue that they were a, a big contribution to uh, greater accountability of the security services in both countries. And if Phil Harding's question, what should the intelligence services do next time a big information dump comes... What should journalists do? Oh, I'm so sorry, what did I say? I was having a senior moment. Uh, what should journalists do when uh, the next time a tempting great lot of, of data uh, comes along? Are you you're still firmly in the publish and be damned camp? Uh, Have you, you know, I, anything that you've sort of... I, 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 I still think that, that it, journalists should do the same thing the Guardian basically did, carefully redact the, the material and try to cooperate behind the scenes and see what they are publishing and not doing national damage to national security, of course. But I think you still have an obligation when you come across such a big story to publish it. And I think uh, journalists should do it also in the future. Um, I'd like to say the Guardian, by the standards of other publications, has been super careful. There was only one story that they didn't run past the D-Notice Committee, and that, unfortunately, did give away a rather useful intelligence capability, but uh, I guess they think that's just part of the game. O- other newspapers have been astonishingly and really reckless, and some of the non-newspaper outlets even more so. To the lady in pink, I just want to say, I, I guess you probably don't read the Daily Mail very often. Sorry? You probably don't read the Daily Mail very often. Uh, 
Well, please read it today because it's got a fantastic takedown of Goldman Sachs in it. It refers to Goldman Sachs as the giant squid and highlights, highlight, which, is a, which is a great phrase, and highlights the um, malign influence which um, Goldman Sachs has, on, has on, on, on international finance. You may find allies in unlikely places. Um, but quickly, I, if you could, very briefly, three more questions. Here. Come on. Uh, on, on intelligence, I think if you get a, a, ultimately, journalists have to use their judgment, and you have to reckon if you publish secrets, you may get prosecuted, you plead public interest, you may get convicted, you may go to jail, and then you hope for a pardon, preferably not posthumously, if public opinion's on your side. <laughs> right, okay, loads of questions. Uh, who's got a microphone? Yes, well, you wanted just more fire. Just a haiku in response to that. Just because somebody does a, does a bad thing doesn't mean you can do bad things to them. Well, you're right. Okay, so the, the, your question is you, you thought you wanted more spying on the Americans. I, I think that this is the elevation between who are the bad and the good ones, the Democrats and the dictatorship. It's, it's, it's just banal, banal moral equivalence. I'm not going to answer that. Right. Okay, next one. Right, uh, next lot. Right, you're all suddenly perked up. I, I can't actually see where the microphones are, but if you've got one, shout into it. Thank you. Yes, in the middle there. That'd be fine. Thank you. Lady in the middle. Um, hi, I was just wondering, you said just because someone does bad things, it doesn't justify doing bad things to them. But then you were saying that because dictatorships are bad, it justifies spying on them. So I just wondered how that fits together. Oh, don't, I, I'm tempted to say don't get him started. We'll, 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 just, we'll, we'll hold that one. Um, there's a gentleman over there. Yeah. Hi, good morning. My name is Samuel Hooper. I'm a freelance journalist and a blogger, semi-partisan Sam. It's a question, the title of this segment is Journalism After Snowden, Watchdog or Thug. And I'm wondering, in a year when the UK's fallen from 29th to 33rd in the World Press Freedom Index, um, a year after a partner of a journalist was detained ludicrously under anti-terrorism laws at Heathrow Airport, had nothing to do with journalism, a year when the Prime Minister dispatched a Cabinet Secretary to the offices of a major national newspaper to threaten it with closure for running stories, and a year when that same newspaper had to destroy hard drives under the watchful gaze of the security services, whether we should really be having this introspective discussion about whether journalists are the thugs. <laughs> Okay, let, let's take one more. Do we have one from this side? I'm doing this kind of pantomime style now, randomly. Can I have someone over here? Uh, just an idea I'd like a response to. Nico McDonald, maybe Ed on this particularly also. Michael, uh, it seems that media and politicians in the UK are increasingly dependent on each other, uh, which makes them supine both on both sides. And that, but they also have a sort of hatred of each other, partly because of that. And I wonder, given that politicians in the UK arguably stand for less than they ever did, has this made the media and journalists more cynical about them, such that they assume everybody's doing something wrong and in it for themselves? And that leads to the more critical and, I would argue, unconstructive journalism, which doesn't assume that anyone can do anything good for any reason. Yeah, we might go straight to Michael with that one because the joys of Snowden, I think, will take us to the, to the end of, of our time. Uh, the relationship of uh, press and politics, uh, rather, journalists to politicians, as Dr. Lamppost, I think it was famously said, has, can that go too far, as the questioner says, to the point where we doubt and tug down every motive in politics? 